As we work our way from Matthew chapter 12 into Matthew 13, we really enter what I find to be an exciting uh, passage of Scripture. Really the entire chapter, Matthew 13, Matthew records for us uh, seven parables. Uh, These parables are known as the kingdom parables. Uh, Very significant passages of Scripture, important passages of Scripture, uh, profound Uh, A unique teaching style, an example of this, a demonstration of this. Jesus no doubt taught in parables, as we'll see, he taught parables often. Uh, These are just the ones that are recorded for us. And again, it's interesting that there are seven, seven kingdom parables. Seven parables that Jesus uses to articulate truths of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Seven kingdom parables. If you are into biblical numerology, and I don't go too extreme when it comes to these type of matters. But there is a there there are some obvious principles that we find kind of consistent all throughout Scripture. And one of those numbers is seven. You will find that the number seven, just as you're working your way, is an important number. It's a significant number. It's a number that that marks completion. Uh, the precedent of the concept goes all the way back to creation. You know, God could have established a week in any way he decided he could have done a six-day week or an eight-day week or a hundred-day week but he chose to work for six days and on the seventh he rested and then the the week began anew it was God that established a seven-day week kind of an interesting thing the cycle to it the week is over a completion we find in music that the scale you know music the scale exists in a seven-note progression again the completion uh you know of 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 the chord it's it's the seven notes seven completion you find this all throughout scripture seven kingdom parables therefore demands at least a question why just seven now you can find a lot of different theories regarding why seven i have a theory of my own in fact, it's a theory I've been sitting on for a few, a few years. Um, and the more I studied this passage this week, the more confident I was that, that this was more than just a theory, but something worth sharing. Seven kingdom parables. Again, regarding Jesus, you also find Jesus articulating important truths in, a, in another coupling of seven. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you find Jesus, through John the Apostle, sending seven letters to seven churches that were located within the region of Asia Minor. Seven kingdom parables, seven letters to the churches. I believe that there is a strong parallel between the two. In fact, I actually think that the seven letters you find in Revelation 2 and 3 provide you an interesting insight and cipher to some of the passages you find within these seven kingdom parables, that the parallel uh, gives some indication, gives some clarity to what Jesus is getting at. Now, parables. Interesting thing about parables. Parables are not just illustrations. It's a style of teaching with a very particular point. The, The word parable, it means to cast alongside. Jesus will point out something within the natural world And he's casting this story or this this image, this picture, alongside of a truth. One of the things you can get into trouble with regarding parables 
is trying to find all of the hidden meaning in every, every detail of the parable. That wasn't really the idea of a parable. The parable wasn't to parallel every truth you're trying to communicate, but use a, parallel, use a parable to parallel a truth, an idea. Now, Jesus will do us a favor in some of these parables by removing the mystery of them entirely. In fact, the first parable that we'll look at today, Jesus, a few verses after the fact, will give you the cipher. He'll tell you the meaning. He'll even point out all the parts and explain what each part uh, indicated, what it meant, what it was signifying. So Jesus will help us with some of the parables by actually telling us the meaning. And in those instances, there's no need for speculation. Jesus is pretty cut and dry. But other parables, Jesus is very vague. Now, there's a reason that Jesus is vague. We'll again look at that this morning. But you can run across, for example, the parable of the mustard seed. You can find a hundred different interpretations of what Jesus is meaning, what he's, what he's paralleling, what truth he's trying to articulate through the parable. You can, f- you can listen to a hundred pastors on that passage and find about a hundred different interpretations regarding the meaning. Some interesting, some ludicrous. I think, again, the parallel between seven letters to the church and the kingdom parables provides us context to give us a depth of meaning, especially regarding the parables where Jesus leaves a little bit of mystery. Now, you might take a step back and say, well, what, what's, the, what, what's the big deal about the seven letters to the churches? Now, it's true that reading the seven letters to the churches, Jesus is actually writing to a literal church towards the end of the first century. That when Jesus writes to the church of Ephesus, there's an actual congregation in the ancient city of Ephesus that Jesus is writing this letter to that has a very specific meaning to that group of people in that day and the things that they were facing. And when Jesus writes to Laodicea or Smyrna or Pergamos, that he's writing to an actual group of people living at the end of the first century, an actual literal church. And that's true. That is one way that you can read the seven letters. Obviously, and this should go without saying, but I'll say it nonetheless, that all of the letters, because of, again, their completion, Jesus writing to the church, he's speaking to us, too. That within every one of these letters, Jesus is articulating things that we personally need to check ourselves with, that we need to examine ourselves with Scripture. What is the Lord speaking to us through this particular letter? So there's an application to what we might say the little C church of the day, but then there's an application within each letter to the, the larger church, to our church, to you as a person, an individual. But there is a third way of reading the seven letters based upon the notion of completion uh, by which they are a bit more predictive. I, I come from this particular persuasion. The way that I see uh, the seven letters to the churches is that Jesus is writing to periods of the church, of the church age, that each of the seven letters corresponds to a, a time period within church history. We find three of the letters uh, that indicate a continuation up until the tribulation. I think Jesus' letters to those specific churches and time periods continue today. Uh, they would include the Roman Catholic Church there in Thyatira, uh, the Protestant Church, uh, really I'd say four, the Philadelphian Church and the Laodicean Church, uh, all continuing. But again, Jesus is addressing the church, seven letters, writing to the church in its totality. Paralleling back to the seven kingdom parables, Jesus is picking out seven 
He's articulating truths of the kingdom. Now, what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, the kingdom of heaven has two different interpretations that are both equally true, depending on perspective. First, the kingdom of heaven is something that is still coming. That there is an actual, literal fulfillment to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. That there will be a day, a day in time, a day in the future, where Jesus returns. And Jesus establishes a kingdom here on this earth with Jerusalem as its capital, that the kingdom of heaven will be a literal place, a place of peace and joy, of tranquility. We have passages within the Old Testament, the prophets describing this kingdom where the lion lays with the lamb and the child plays with the cobra. As God had intended the earth to be back in the garden before sin, it will once again be restored to. So when we're talking about the kingdom of heaven, yes, there is an application in which Jesus is describing a future kingdom. And yet there is another more immediate application as well regarding the church. Now, it has never been the commission of the church to establish a kingdom on earth. We are members of a coming kingdom. We are citizens of a coming kingdom. Yes, that has a literal fulfillment. But in its practical sense, there is a spiritual application of the kingdom of God within us. Again, we talk about we're ambassadors of Christ Jesus. Well, we have a king, a king that's coming. In the meantime, we're here in a land that's not our home. Pilgrims passing through, sojourners. And it's our job on earth to represent the kingdom of which we are a citizen of. Paul will talk about being a citizen of heaven. And so when Jesus talks about king, the kingdom, there is a dual fulfillment to what he's addressing. He's addressing the church. He's addressing us He's addressing those that have, that have been filled with his spirit, that have a king. Yes, we have a president, but we have a king that supersedes it all. And thus, he's also referring to a kingdom that will come. So we are part of a coming, coming kingdom. I hope you realize that. You're part of the kingdom of heaven, a citizen. One day you'll be called home. But until then, you're to represent the king and the ethics of that kingdom more than all else. That's why in Romans 13, when Paul is addressing kind of our relationship with the secular state, there's an idea in which we're to submit to the laws of the land, and we're to pray for our leaders, we're to be good citizens, as long as the mandates of the secular state don't infringe upon our higher calling, and higher mandate, and higher law, and ethics. And at that point, rebellion is justified, resistance is, is, is warranted. Again, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So when Jesus is talking about these, these, when he's communicating these parables to teach lessons about the kingdom, they have an application to us. I think the cipher to help us greater understand what Jesus is saying is that each of the seven kingdom, kingdom parables correlates with one of Jesus' seven letters to the church. As we work our way through the next couple weeks, all of these parables, I think this idea will make more sense to you. I'm just laying that out at the beginning. With each of them, we'll probably close our study by looking at the parallel. Um, some of them are, are, I think, cut and dry obvious. A little bit, uh, some of them are a little bit vaguer in their intent. But just in lead in, this is an incredible passage of Scripture, Matthew 13, seven kingdom parables. So let's just dive in. We, we read that on the same day, and so there's a continuation of chronology from the the previous chapter in which Jesus has been kind of going tit for tat with the Pharisees, the religious establishment. His mother, his brothers, his family come. They want to retrieve him. 
Jesus makes this wonderful declaration that whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is part of my family, my brother, my sister, my mother. On the same day, as Jesus was saying these things, we're told that he went out of the house, which gives us the locale for what he was, for where he was saying the things he was articulating. The house, more than likely, he's in Capernaum. The house, the definitive article indicates that this is likely the house of Simon Peter. But Jesus leaves the house. And we're told that he sits by the sea, the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus sits on the shore. Verse 2, and great multitudes were gathered together to him. So he, so he got into a boat and sat, and the multitude stood on the shore. So you got to get the scene. Jesus has been ministering all day. It's probably dusk. Can't say that for sure, but just an indication. He goes down. What a, what a scene. Sitting there on the shore, a little R&R. Probably took his beach chair, rubbing his toes in the sand. Enjoying the view, the Sea of Galilee. Interesting. If you do travel to Israel, this is one of, one of the locations that kind of rocks your world. Because you just don't really get the, the image unless you've been there. The Sea of Galilee, I've noted before, it's more of a lake. It's a lake that behaves like a sea, which is where it gets its name. But it's not big at all. Seven miles by 14 and a half miles. You can sit on the shore and see the whole lake. You can see across, see from side to side, east to west. So Jesus is here. He's enjoying it. And the multitudes come. They're hungry for the things that Jesus is saying, for his words. And so he gets into a boat because of the crowd creates a little distance between himself and the multitude. And he's going to teach off the boat. So again, you have this crowd standing on the shore. And Jesus sitting in the boat. Again, customary uh, for the rabbi, for the synagogue. The rabbi would sit and teach. The multitudes would stand. Definitely keeps people from falling asleep during the Bible study. Verse 3, we're told that Jesus spoke many things to them in parables. Now, here's the first. Behold, a sower went out to sow. That's kind of an interesting way of phrasing it. Behold. You know, the idea of behold, Matthew's favorite go-to word. is like, think about it. Take a moment and consider this. Jesus speaking, a sower went out to sow. And you're like, no kidding. That's kind of what a sower does. He sows. Again, the region of, of Galilee. Sure, there was a, a, a massive fishing industry for obvious reasons. But the surrounding countryside, because of the water, had water for irrigation. The soil was fertile. A lot of people living in the Galilee, if you weren't a fisherman, you were engaged in some type of, of agricultural enterprise. You were a farmer of such, And so Jesus is going to tell this story, a parable, uh, and he's using an image that everyone was very familiar with, something that they could relate to. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside. Now, the, the wayside, it was, it was hardened soil, such as the birds came and, and was able to devour the seed. Verse 5, some of the seed fell on stony places where they didn't have much earth. And they immediately sprang up 
because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns. And the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop. Some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, an indicator, I think, that this has a parallel uh, back to the, the letters Jesus sent to the churches in Revelation. He closes the parable in the same way he closes each of the letters. The difference being in the letters, Jesus says, he who has a, an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Again, the Holy Spirit hasn't come, and thus he says, just he who has an ear, let him hear. So he tells the story. Now notice, within the story, Jesus doesn't, in real time, provide any explanation. He doesn't define any of the terms. He just tells a story. And those that are listening can at least understand uh, the most natural points in which he's articulating. A sower goes out and he throws seed. Now the success of the seed will depend upon the, the, the soil itself, what kind of soil the seed lands upon. And if it's, if it's the walkway, you know, that's making its way through the field and the seed gets thrown onto the, the wayside, well, the seed can't penetrate the soil and, and thus birds will come and devour it. They'll get their snack and it's a wasted. Obvious. And then, and then, you know, kind of the, the offshoot of the path, the stony place. So, well, some seed falls there. There's a little earth, but then there's some stone. So the seed isn't devoured by the birds because it's able to get into some soil. But because of the stoniness, there's no roots. And when the sun comes out and it's blazing, uh, it just doesn't make it. It doesn't survive. It withers. Even if it shoots up a sprout of some kind, it's not going to make it. It's not going to live. It's not going to survive. And, and then there are some of the seed that gets, gets thrown into parts of the, of the field that, that haven't been properly threshed and cleaned out. There's thorns and thistles. And yes, the seed will, will root down. It'll enjoy the sunshine. It'll have the water. It'll grow. But it'll get choked out by all that's around it. You see, if you're a good sower and you're sowing seed, the prime real estate is the tender soil, the good stuff. And the sower throws seeds there, and because there's good soil, it can, it can sink into this, and, and underneath the dirt, under the layer, it can grow its roots, it has its nourishment, and it grows, and it's healthy, and it's profitable. It produces. And then Jesus says, and sometimes when it produces, you know, it can be a hundredfold, or sometimes sixtyfold, or thirtyfold, but it yields. It yields. Now the disciples, verse 10, they came and they said to Jesus, Why do you speak to them in parables? So why are you communicating using this particular, this, this mode, this style? They're curious. They're probably curious because no one, no one really did this. Like this is something that's quite unique to Jesus. So they're like, what's the strategy why are you taking this approach? And so Jesus answered and said to them, verse 11, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Now, who's he talking about here? 
Again, I think this is important within the context of being the same day. He's just had a tit-for-tat with the Pharisees, in which he's had some very hard things to say to them in response to the accusation that he was casting demons out by the power of Beelzebub. I mean, Jesus throws down the gauntlet. I mean, he calls the spade a spade. Jesus drops some truth bombs in the previous chapter. And in the context of, of this interaction, Jesus is telling his disciples, well, why are you teaching in parables? Well, for you, it's, it's been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. I'm trying to articulate something that you will understand while at the same time concealing it from someone else. You see, a parable is designed to reveal as much as it is to conceal. It's to reveal a truth to the person seeking truth, but to conceal the truth from those that aren't. He continues, For whoever has, to him more will be given. Okay. For whoever has. Go back. Because it has been given to you to know what the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not. For whoever has the mysteries of the kingdom, or ears to hear the mysteries of the kingdom. Whoever has, to him more will be given. And he will have abundance. But whoever does not have an ear to hear, who doesn't want to listen, who the, the mysteries of the kingdom are being withheld from, whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, as a result, I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Verse 14, it could be that Jesus is saying this, or that Matthew's adding the commentary. But in this whole idea, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, hearing you will hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive, for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see. Of course, he's speaking of himself and his ministry and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So what is Jesus saying? Again, within the context of all that's happening in Jesus's ministry and this growing opposition, he's going from this period of, of incredible popularity to some some real kickback from the religious leaders. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He's not oblivious to the reality. He realizes that he's going to be rejected. The very people within Israel that had been given charge to keep a lookout for the Messiah would see but reject, would hear but resist, and they would crucify him. And Jesus is telling the disciples, listen, there's two groups of people here within the multitude. There are people that genuinely want to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, that want to know what I have to say, that want to accept it and cherish it, who have ears to hear. You know that idea, everyone has an ear. You know that. Looking around. 
You all have an ear. We all have ears. Even if you have one cut off, Jesus makes it singular, an ear to hear. So you got one. He was an ear to hear. Let him hear, which implies something beyond the physical, and its implication is something spiritual, something of the will. It's not that Jesus is saying, he who has the ability to hear, hear me. It's he who is willing to hear what I'm saying, listen, hear. And of course, within the multitude, they all had ears, but there was a group of people resisting Jesus, rejecting Jesus, didn't want anything to do with Jesus, and there was another group of people hungry for what Jesus was saying. And so they're like, why are you teaching in parables? And Jesus is like, well, because I want to reveal some things to these people, those willing to hear, but I want to conceal some truths to these people who are rejecting. And why would Jesus conceal what well, comes down to a greater principle established in the previous chapter, and that is that we will be held one day accountable for what we do with the amount of revelation we receive. And, and in fact, what Jesus is saying is I'm teaching in parables because I'm doing them a favor. Because more truth that's revealed to these people, more truth that they resist, more truth that they reject, the greater their judgment in the end. And so I want to communicate some things to the people my multitude, the crowd, it's split. So I'm going to teach in a parable so that those who have an ear, who want to hear, can hear, but those that don't, won't. Therefore, Jesus says, hear the parable of the sower. So now he goes back to the parable of the sower. So if there was any indication as to what Jesus was trying to communicate in the parable of the sower, that mystery is removed because Jesus is going to interpret it for us. That's convenient. So he says, hear. Again, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Hear what I'm saying through this parable. The parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. And so this first indication, the hardened heart, Jesus defines the seed, right? First, he's the sower. He's the one uh, sowing seed. So in regards to the identity of the sower, it's Jesus. He's articulating as the king the truths of the kingdom, revealing the mysteries of the kingdom. So Jesus is the sower. The seed is his word. It's his word. It's what he's communicating. It's what he's articulating. So Jesus is describing himself as a farmer and what is he doing in the Galilee, in the regions? He's sowing seeds as he's teaching the people, as he's articulating to the people. It's the imagery he's invoking. I'm casting seeds. Now some of these seeds, well, falls on hardened soil. That's not receptive to receive it. It's not accepted at all. I communicate things, it's there, and then it gets devoured. It gets taken away by the evil one. It's hardened. And again, the application of this would be, would be many of the Pharisees. But he who received the seed on stony places, so now we have a second classification. This is he who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now, let, let, me, let me articulate what isn't being described here before I, I define what is. Now, Jesus is describing kind of a wishy-washy person, right? 
there's some hardness, there's some receptivity, you know, not full stony ground, there's some soil, even to the point that it'll receive the word. In fact, Jesus says with joy, this is the type of person that hears the word of God and they get excited about it and they accept it and they're cool with it. And then, and then what Jesus says here, he says, then tribulation or persecution arises and, and they bail. And a lot of the interpretations of this will, will be like, well, this is, the, this is the Christian that when the heat gets turned up in the world, they bail. You know, they can't, they can't stand, they don't have any roots, any substance. And as a result, when, when pressure gets applied, they're out. Not, not, not exactly what Jesus says. Notice that when he says, when tribulation or persecution arises, why? Because of the word. Now, it is true that tribulation and persecution can arise from the word of God, from our acceptance of the word of God. Hey, if you believe the truth of Scripture, there is a very real-world kickback against you, a rejection of you. It is true that our beliefs and positions concerning Scripture will put us into furnaces. But in this application, what is actually Jesus saying? He's saying that this is a tribulation and persecution that arises because of the Word, indicating that it's the Word that creates some type of persecution or tribulation within the person. See, I think what Jesus is describing here is the individual that is really cool with Jesus. It's super excited to come to church until what's being said at church offends them. It's like I'm all into this Jesus thing until Jesus starts telling me what I'm supposed to be doing. And it's like, well, wait a second. This is my identity. This is what I'm doing. Like, I'm cool with you, Jesus. Leave me alone. I want to come to church and feel good when I leave, not always convicted. And sometimes this, because they have no roots, they have no substance. The seed is planted, but it's not nourished. And so when the word of God offends them, they're out. They bail. They're done. By the way, this is one of the reasons that we have a huge movement within church culture to not teach the Bible. Like we've created a church Christian culture that is literally a thousand miles wide and about an inch deep. And there's no roots. And so when the word of God says something that's tough, they bail, which is why we avoid passages in which the Bible says something tough or difficult because we are more interested in the number of people than the quality. D.L. Moody once said that the congregation should not, should not be so much numbered as it should be weighed. It's not the number of people, it's the quality. And again, there are some seed are sown and they accept it with joy until it matters and it hits. And it doesn't make it. It stumbles. Now he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Again, a, a tragic third category of a person. Again, they're not hardened at all. They understand their frailty, their weakness, their need. And there's soil that receives the word. And it wants to grow. But it ends up unfruitful. Why? 
because there are other things growing within the soil that choke it out. Cares. And then Jesus defines cares of the world by saying deceitfulness. The world promises so much, it never yields, it never provides. This is a person that has one foot in and put one foot out. Jesus is like, the seed will, it'll do its thing. It'll grow. It'll grow roots and it'll sprout up, but there won't be ever fruit. Because it's choked out. But he who receives seed on good ground is he who hears the word and understands it. And then what? Who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. Now you need to understand something about this particular parable. First, again, as we've noted, there are four different types of people that Jesus is describing. Notice he sows the seed in all of them. You know, one of the things that, that people will often do is they'll point out that this is not the, the parable of the sower. It should be the parable of the soil. Well, you need to let Jesus know you disagree with him because he defines it in verse 18 as here the parable of the soil. No, 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 the sower. And it's also true that there will be some people that say, well, this should be the parable of the seed. And there is an application to that, right? I mean, what is the power? Like, how do you get to fruit? Yes, there should be soil. But the, the, the power, the, the mystery, it's all in the seed, isn't it? I mean, really, if you think about it, it's an amazing thing. Seed, you take a seed. And you put it in soil, and you tend to that soil. Do you ever grow a plant? I know some of you have got gardens at your house. Do you grow? Do you grow the, the tomatoes? Do you grow the fruit, the okra, the, the vegetables? Do you grow the watermelon? Do you grow it? If you say yes, that's some hubris. Because that's, that's the same type of hubris as saying, I had a baby. I didn't. All you do is put seed in soil. I'll leave that analogy there. Could have gone a direction I wasn't intending. But you put seed. Now, yes, there should be some care. But when it's all said and done, the, the power, whatever is produced derives itself from the very DNA of the seed. Whatever genetic code is in that seed. Now, in our lives, we want to become more like Christ. We want to become more like the living word, Jesus. That's the goal, to become more, we call it Christ-likeness. What does it mean? It means to be like Christ. The idea of the Christian experience is that God gives you his spirit, and over time, you become more like Jesus. And how do we become more like the, the, the living word? We dive into the written word, the seed of the soil. We, we water it. It germinates. You will not become like Jesus without Jesus dwelling in you and then working in you and through you. The fruit is only yielded from the code of the seed. So some have called this the parable of the seed, but again, they would disagree with Jesus. And this is the parable of the sower, which if you think of it in that context, this is an odd parable, isn't it? Because what Jesus is describing, again, take one step back, 
you're there on the shore. You've left your farm. You've come to hear Jesus. You're hearing Jesus talk about the sower and throwing seed on the, the pathway and the rocky places and where there's thorns and on good soil. And you're sitting there thinking, again, we don't think this way because we're not farmers, but if you're in that day, you're thinking, that's a terrible sower. I mean, think about that for a moment. Like, you're wasting a whole bunch of seed. Like, you're just throwing it around indiscriminately. Like, a good farmer teals up the soil, and he gets his runs, and he goes, and he's, care he's careful with the seed. I mean, he plants it in rows and good spacing. What Jesus is describing is it, somebody that's just, he's casting it out. Wherever it lands. So what do we derive from that? I think we derive something about the heart of God and our response to the heart of God. I switch and I'll flip to the first letter that Jesus writes to the church of Ephesus. Chapter 2 of Revelation, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works your labor, your patience, that you can't bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them to be liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will give to him to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, Jesus writing to the church of Ephesus, I believe he's also writing to the very first period of church history, what we would call the apostolic age. And indeed, we see an interesting manifestation from this very simple parable, right? Jesus casted seed. And there was a very real world response. And yet there was a, a crop, a fruit, a growth. Amazing. And again, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And yet the parable was not so much about the seed, and nor was it so much about the soil, but it was about the sower. Now, in the first century, some things were happening. you got to realize that the first century church, I mean, they were a great church. The apostolic church. They had solid Bible teaching. They had a love for the word. They were servants. They were ministering. Needs arose. There was too much for the apostles to do. So they choose seven men. They chose seven men. Stephen, Philip is two of them. God was at work. Things were happening. And Jesus is observing this time period of history. Theologically sound, Bible geeks, devoted, pious, workers. He's like, I see all of that. But I do have one thing against you. He says, you have left your first love. So remember where you have fallen, repent, do the first works, or I'll remove your lampstand from you. So what is Jesus saying in its context to this parable? You know, sometimes, and I think this is an interesting application for you and I, a part of a Bible teaching church, is it's, we, can, we can become so focused 
on learning the Bible and understanding the Bible and reading the Bible. We can be Bible gurus and completely miss the point of the Bible itself. You see, it is through the Word of God that we get to know the Son of God. You see, this apostolic church had become so focused on doing the right things, obeying the Word, that they forgot how fruit was manifesting, how fruit should manifest, and what the true heart was supposed to be. You don't read the Bible to read the Bible. You read the Bible to get to know Jesus, which is why you should come to it to begin with. You know, people say, well, you know, the Bible has all the answers to whatever questions you have. Yes, but not in the way you think. It has all the answers to the questions that you have because it reveals the answer. And his name is Jesus. This church was so focused in doing what the Bible told them to do, and they were good at it, that they forgot the Bible is a mechanism. It was something they were to cherish. Why? Because of what it represented. It was the basis of their relationship with a person, of Jesus. And over time within this church, uh, there, there was such a, an emphasis on orthodoxy that the church was dead. And so Jesus is like, you need to repent. Legalism. You have forgotten the essence of our relationship. The first love. That moment you came to the cross and accepted what I did on your behalf. And we're filled with the Spirit. And the Word, it's, it's supposed to encourage that relationship. The Bible, heaven forbid it, become a document of things for us to do. As opposed to being the mechanism by which we get to know Jesus. And understand Jesus and love Jesus. And it's in that process that we're reminded, how does fruit happen? By what you do? Or by what He's done? Fruit happens when you abide in the vine. Christianity in this first century context had become so focused. Paul and the Pauline epistles, you know what he's writing most about over and over and over again? Yes, there are instances like in Corinth, he's, he's addressing carnality. But more often than that, again, Ephesians, Galatians, his fighting epistles, Romans, he's addressing legalism. He's like, you guys are so focused on, on this moralness not realizing that, like, God just wants to hang out with you. And it's from hanging out with Him and His Word that you become fruitful. And they had lost sight of that. And so again, the, the, the parable of the sower, Jesus is like, remember, I'm the sower. And that I sow all over the place. Because I love you. Because I care about you. He who has an ear, hear for us this morning. The sower sows seed. The goal should be fruitfulness, right? Are you allowing cares of the world to choke out what God's wanting to do in you? Or are you stony ground? There are parts of you receptive but parts of you are like, Jesus, leave that alone. Are you purely hardened? Again, Jesus wants to produce. He wants to sow. The seed wants to, to settle. And it wants to grow. 
The key is, do you have an ear to hear? Are you willing to listen? What Jesus has to say. So, Father, Lord, we just leave that there. Let that settle in. In Jesus' name. Again, we're going to get into some of these parables <coughs> that are that Jesus <laughs> Jesus doesn't give us the interpretation. You know, parable of the, the the sower is an easy one because Jesus Jesus tells us what it's about. The tares, he'll do the same. But again, the leaven, the mustard seed. I think there's some interesting parallels, and again, we're going to unpack that as we move forward. So. Uh, study ahead, read ahead. I would also encourage you to go to Revelation 2 and 3 and read through that and, uh, and let the Lord speak to you in, in that regard as well.